Hello and welcome to The Narrativist, an audio drama podcast bringing together works of new writing with inspiring guests. Each episode will frame the narrative by chatting to individuals who've gone out to make a difference in the world. The Narrativist is an open platform, so if you'd like to host an interview or submit a play, get in touch. Enjoy! Hi again, I'm Charlie. I'm Jack. And uh, this is our very first interview that we recorded back in 2016 over Skype. We spoke to Claire in France, who at the time was living in a squat in Lyon. And in this, she walks us through the step-by-step process of finding and opening a squat. Cool. That means we're all set up. Brilliant. We're good to go. (laughs) It's nice to meet you, Claire. So... I guess, yeah. Tell us about squatting. Tell us about it all. I know nothing. I know nothing. So, so I already know a little bit about what you do. Okay. I guess let's start with how how you got involved. What what? How did it begin? How did I get involved? I was doing a masters at UCL in anthropology, environment, and development, and I had to choose a fieldwork project for my dissertation, um, and that was meant to involve about two to three months in the field, ideally three months. And there were two subjects that I hesitated between, and one of them was to do with food waste. And I basically wanted to follow people who'd been dive. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I wanted to find a community because of the, you know, you know the anthropological requirements. You kind of need sure. a village, tribe-like atmosphere to be able to carry out the study and see um, more than one person acting on that. I mean, it didn't have to be that way. But I knew that there were communities that surely lived off of bin diving. And um, so I started doing research. And then I um, I found an activist group in Lyon called Les Gaspières. And <laughs> they're making fun of me. Uh, anyway, in the ba- in, it, we did an interview, basically. I conducted an interview with them um, in December 2013. And one of the guys said... Yeah, I've been dive and I actually used to live in a squat and I used to feed the squat that way. And whenever we had surplus food, I'd drive over there and, and bring them some more when I stopped squatting. Um, it turned out he, had actually, he was actually just trying to be secretive about it and he was still squatting in that place. And I was able to find the website of this squatting group because they run a lot of workshops. And it was called Au Château d'Anciel. And the other one was called, the other squat was called Collège or Radar. Collège because it's an old uh, high school. Radar because it has one of those, um, you know, um, speed limit measurement devices. Uh, I can't radar, remember what uh, yeah, in English. Speed camera. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, the radar. Okay, right, it's the same thing. Okay. Um, and basically, I got in touch with... So I checked this website and I saw that they had this amazing project which was to create this restaurant based off of food that has been collected and that's been skipped for. Uh, or gleaned at markets and things and I was like oh this is ideal because I'll be in a squat and they've got a specific project that they're starting to run you know when I can be there um, which is the beginning of April so I emailed them telling them what I wanted to do etc and then they invited me to come to the squat I thought that they'd had a meeting with everyone to mention that I was coming but in the end it turned out they didn't um, so some people were kind of surprised and the project was actually quite small scale and everyone kind of made fun of me being like oh well you're coming to study this you know random workshop that's taking place in a squat in Lyon you know you could have been anywhere else um and so it hadn't started when I came and I think it was the second week that it was put into place so I was able to follow the project from the very beginning and so that's how I got to the to the squat which was called the uh, Collège Radar. So they had like a website and everything set up? So they so they used to so it was this group of people who started squatting in uh, I think it was 2011. Le Château dans la, de la Doua. Le Château de la Doua, c'est de quoi Yeah, 2011 is the first one. And it was called Au Château dans le ciel, the first one as well. Um, which is a reference to Miyazaki's The Castle in the Sky. <laughs> Ideal, perfect. 2013? Ah, no, sorry, 2013 was Le Château dans la, de la Doua. Okay, February 2013. Sorry, I'm getting all the dates. Um, no worries. Well. So that was the first big um, workshop-oriented 
popular education oriented squad that opened in York and there were only four people in that squad and it was this huge castle um, that was on the university campus and it was actually university um, property and they were meant to transform it into accommodation for students which they still haven't done to this day <laughs> so let's let's talk about how that works how you find the property how you go about starting a squat and then what the, what that process yeah entails. so basically people find squats in a variety of different ways either people tell them about it as in oh i saw this abandoned building you know you should go check it out blah 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 most often you walk I mean, you're walking along the street and you look up and you see that some windows haven't been cleaned for a while. Um, <laughs> perhaps you'll come across an odd anti-squat metal door, which is usually the kind of security um, systems they put in place. You've got some in London as well. Like They're with the holes C-tex. in it? With little, like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 no, you mean. Um, okay, yeah. But they don't necessarily have holes in them. That's for the windows. The ones for the doors are, you know, huge... Um, just metal. big metal yeah, plates yeah yeah and yeah. they're really difficult to break into that's the kind of point of them anyway <laughs> um, <laughs> and so you might see one of those and usually those are put on by um, public institutions that are, pro- that are protecting their own property so things like the, the council uh, the council's properties will be protected in that way um, I don't know m- big companies will have that kind of protections and then the other case would be finding um, say an em- empty house and that's usually privately owned so usually you try to do your research beforehand um, and also when you enter a building um, when you're not so sure and you end up seeing objects that belong to the old owners which is the case of um, our present building which is publicly owned but had lots of um, lots of things that were left behind by the previous owners such as silverware um, old photo albums, Vogue magazines, like vintage Vogue magazines. These really awesome objects that you can find and you're like, wow, this is so cool. Um, and it's from a different time and everything. But it's it's from the old owners, um, the things they left behind when they had to sell to the Gonel, which is another big thing, um, which is important to know about squatting, is that the buildings in, your, in any case, um, when they're publicly owned, it's often because the metropolis of Lyon has decided to buy them. So say, for instance, Jack, you're, um, you're selling your house to Charlie um, <laughs> and, and I come along and I'm the metropolis of Lyon and I'm like, no, 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 Jack, you don't sell that house for two million euros. I'm going to buy it off you for one million and you have no choice in the matter. What? And so you say, what? I, I, you know, I was going to sell it to my best buddy and it was going to be for two million euros. And what happens then is you can appeal that decision, except you'll lose. You'll definitely lose. Because my argument will be, look, Jack, I'm going to buy this house off you so that I can create social housing for all those poor people that don't have any housing in your... Because normally, the legal amount of housing that needs to be in every borough is 20%. And in this borough, there are only like 10% of you know social housing. Um, and then you're like, what? And then you're really upset, and then you lose out. And so I buy this, ha- this property... And I don't have the money, or I say I don't have the money to create the social housing, and I'm going to sell it on to Charlie. And I'm saying this, this is a concrete example um, of something that happened to a guy who was selling his property for two million euros, and um, he wanted to sell it off to a very luxurious estate agent. Um, and in the end, the metropolis of Lyon ended up selling it to that same agent. Oh, wow. And right. they're clearly not a social housing agency. No. Yeah. So we haven't actually collected all the information to do with um, this particular case but our lawyer was definitely interested because it's one of the many cases where the metropolis of Lyon buys a building says they're going to do something so either they sell it on the other thing they do which is equally unfair is they say we've got to evict this building urgently because we've got to start the building works on this house that we're going to build into a, a massive uh, I don't know 16 story building for social housing and they never do get around to doing that construction work so they evict people they remove all the copper tubes, all the you know, electrical wiring and all that kind of stuff, so no one can go and squat in it and live in decent conditions. And then, you know, one of the buildings in question that I'm thinking of has been empty for six years and in this kind of state of insalubrity and vacancy that um, has been unresolved by the metropolis of Lyon because they still haven't started the construction work. And they really have no, you know, concrete excuse for that kind of 
thing and they they can't defend themselves in court anyway when we mention this kind of building they're like yeah but we we had a project on it and we you know lost funding or they have they always have reasons sure. for, for delaying that kind of work so let's we'll come back to the whole kind of legal yeah. uh, battle um because i love the fact that you guys have a lawyer um <laughs> but let's so you found your property um yeah. it's got dirty windows and a, and a big metal <laughs> plate on the door what's what's the next step from that so i found the property um i then use a marker so not the pen but like any kind of (laughs) any kind of object that might that i might be able to fit into you know the edge of the door or the edge of a window or the shutters Mm -hmm. so that i can then know whether someone's been in the building so that's what you need to check so you, you might see dirty windows someone might have told you it's empty but you need to check for yourself so you kind of block you don't block the door but you put like you know you, it could be sellotape it could be a piece of paper it could be a, a leaf sure. um, and you just put something into the door that you'll know is yours <laughs> um, and then you kind of sit on it for a while and you might come back a week later and check if it's moved and if you're in an emerge like if you're in an urgent situation where you really need to find some place then um, the old squatters have told me they like to wait two weeks for that mark not to move so they were really sure that for two weeks no one's been in the building Ideally, when you're not um, when you're not rushed for time, you want to wait for a month or two. Two months is ideal. So you found the building, yep. um, then you talk to your team if you've got one, and you kind of discuss the different en- you know the entry points of the building. And often you'll find that they might just they might have secured a building with those big metal doors, mm-hmm. and they've left a window open. Some like ridiculous thing. Genuinely, like, like that kind of. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it. I know, <laughs> but it, but it's it's actually what happened. Like Roma went into a building, the Collège Radar, because they'd left a window open. Sure, it was in the backyard, but they left it open and they secured the rest. Of, I mean, the building was locked ridiculous. and everything. Wow. Um, and there was another building, the one I was telling you about, Au Chateau d'Anciel. Um, the door was open. What? So they hadn't secured it, but it was empty. It's very inviting. And they left the door open. They're, they're inviting you wait- in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> someone just like pushed the door, and it opened up, and they were like, wow, it's not even locked. And then they started squatting. Because that's the so, key, isn't it? You need to get in without breaking in. Yeah, you need to get in without causing any um, visible damage. Visible. Oh, right. Yeah. So things like you can't break a window. Okay, well, actually... I'm going to tell you something from like a French perspective, and I know that it's different in London from having talked to the squatting um, collective workshop in London. I think it's very different mm. because in London you can go to jail for squatting, etc. So there's you know yes. a lot of legal yeah. things that are different. In France, if if a window is already broken, the police won't accuse you of having broken that window. Sure. Say if they arrive like two to three days later, which is the legal time that you need to be able to prove that you've been in the building for them not to evict you. Yeah. Which they might do anyway, by the way, but that's the legal thing. Because um, they can't prove that you are the one who's written all, the, all over the walls inside the building, who's taken out the copper, who's destroyed a wall, you know, that kind of stuff. Unless they, they can't see prove you it. do it, they can't. Yeah. yeah, and so they know that if you've entered the building as a squatter, then surely anyone might have entered that building mm-hmm. and done yeah. any, any matter of, um, of stuff in that building, you know, whether it's criminal activity or just sleeping yeah, for the night. Yeah. Um, so basically, you enter the building and you can't leave any visible damage on the door. For instance, you can't use a crowbar and open the door and then just leave it in that kind of state. Because if the police come along and see that, then they can always say, "Hey, you know, you. we can clearly see that you've entered yeah. this building by a cro- like with a crowbar." Um, so you kind of try to leave no trace of your entry. And often, the way that people get in is through windows or doors or the roof. Or the roof. Yeah, so often there are, you know, those um, wind skylights. Yeah, okay, you can yeah. get through a skylight. Cool. Yeah, not like the chimney. Um, I mean, it requires a lot of climbing, and I know that our team isn't very good at. I mean, we've got some good climbers, but we don't have the best climbers in Lyon, and there are two <laughs> very, very good. Where are the best climbers? <laughs> in I love the network that exists here. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a huge network. <laughs> yeah, no, there are two there. really good squatter climbers. Do you do you find a building and and go to place your marker and someone's already put like a leaf in the? Yeah, <laughs> oh, really, you yeah. see other people's markers. Yeah, yeah, you can you can often see other people's markers, and my rule is to leave them in place 
but then other squatters, depending on their personal situation, might remove no, them. No, no, no. So there's a bit, that's bit of really, competition That's there. not very friendly. No, yeah, that's, there's competition. That's right. And but you friendly, you are generally quite friendly with the, these other communities. Yeah. So we we know most of them because either people in our group have lived with them, or either they used to be in a huge squat. So the college radar that I was telling you about mm-hmm. housed about thirty to sixty people. Right. Okay. So that's a huge lot of people, and I think. That in my, in your, the amount of squatters I know that are part of this kind of pseudo unorganized network, there must be about a hundred and fifty. Yeah. Yeah, to two hundred people. Wow. And you're communicating just by by talking to each other, literally, or is it online? Or? Um, so we might go to <clears throat> we might go to say like an event that they've organized in a different squat, and then we might run across them and say, "Hey, how's it going?" Blah blah. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm going to open a new squat, and do you have any like you know, you might say, uh, I need a squat that's suitable for families with children, you know, like Albanian families, refugee families, etc. And then they might say, oh, yeah, OK, well, if you're into that, well, I've seen this huge warehouse where they've got like showers and everything in place. So you can try that building and they might give you plans, but it's kind of a you can't really share them that easily. Mm. It's kind of like skipping and bin diving. You don't really give your best spot and it's quite a taboo subject to just come out and ask of the course, squatters yeah. to tell you what the building <laughs> is that they've marked <laughs> because they probably invested time and energy trying to figure out how to get in there and it might be their like safety net as well so yeah. we've we've identified the house we've marked yeah. it no one's using it we've got in through the back door that was left open yeah. what next so you so before you actually prepare yourself to stay in the building you want to send someone in who's going to take a look around, tell you if the water and electricity system is okay. Because if it's too damaged, you just don't want to go into that kind of building because it'll be a lot of money on your part invested into fixing that system up so that yeah, you can live sure. decently. Yeah. Um, so you send someone in and they'll tell you, okay, it's great, um, everything's fine. So they leave and then you prepare your bags, you go and skip for food, um, you take tools maybe, and then you need to have launched some proof beforehand. This is another bit of illegal information I'm giving you. Um, usually, you want to enter a building with proof in hand. Proof that you've been in the building for 48 hours, which is difficult to do. Often, um, if you want to send yourself a letter, that will be good enough proof, except that you can't do that until you're in the building to retrieve that said letter. And also, if it's a building that's been abandoned for a while, maybe the postman will know not to deliver any any mail to that address. Okay, yeah. So you kind of want to create your proof beforehand. Um, it can be anything from taking photos of the building when you're inside and putting them on this online... Um, it's on this website that's basically like an electronic bailiff and it stamps your photos so that it proves that your photos can't have been taken any time after the date that you uh, say that they've yeah. been taken on. Um, and so... In the French law, you need to have been in a building for 48 hours for it to be declared your principal place of residence. You usually want about a week's worth, just so that you're really covered. Um, And you also want the neighbours to notice you. So if you go in with proof, which often hasn't been the case for me, where Romain and I ended up staying in the building for like two to three days without any proof, any material proof of our being there, Mm -hmm. Um, which is quite stressful, but fun in some ways. <laughs> you then <laughs> you then want the neighbours to notice you. So you'll turn on the lights, you'll maybe like install curtains, if there are no curtains on the windows, so that you can kind of cover up the fact that the b- building is empty and unfurnished. Um, and then you might, some squatters go and talk to the neighbours. Often we don't because we're afraid that they might be yeah. fearful of squatters setting up camp in a, in a building nearby. So we often let them discover us quite naturally. They'll be like, oh, look, there's a light on tonight. Oh, look, this other window's lit up. Oh, look, there are people walking through the door and, you know, coming in with shopping bags. And so it kind of of happens naturally. So that when the police go and investigate in the neighbourhood, people will be able to tell them, yeah, we saw them a week ago and that kind of thing. And so that's another proof. Um, So I just wanted to actually sort of change tack. I'm I'm really interested in the the food... um, side of things that how have you found that the bin diving that you've managed to feed yourself um i really want to talk about this too but i have to go annoyingly okay so we might have to end it there and pick it up another time sure, sure. sorry okay 
Um, oh no, no, because you, yeah, you mentioned you needed to be in Notting Hill. Right? All right, the, the podcast listeners don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, that was our very first interview. Uh, since then, hopefully, we've learnt a few things, such as don't walk out on interviews. We'll uh, come back to Claire. In the meantime, here's David Charles's options for dealing with squatting by persons unknown. And Charlie and I will take a little break. Hmm. Enjoy. Eva. One of the things that the human race needed in order to exist was shelter. So with much painful labour... What are they... you doing? You always start serious radio drama with a quote. Whose grave did you dig this out hey, hey, Steady, steady. That's over a hundred years old. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Never heard of him. Extra points for obscurity. Fine, get on with it then, if you have to. Thank you. <clears throat> So, with much painful labour, they had constructed... drop the voice, at least? Oh, I liked it. Right. Um, they constructed a large number of houses. Thousands of these houses were now standing unoccupied, while millions of people who had helped to build the houses were either homeless or herding together in overcrowded hovels. How's that relevant? Oh, it's called framing the issue. But we're not living in Victorian times anymore. It's 2011. Yes. It's definitely 2011. And today's drama is bearing witness to another bloody battle in the war between the propertied classes and the rest of us. Hello, hello. I suppose I'm the bad guy in this little melodrama, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> what makes you think that? <laughs> oh, because I'm the propertied classes. <laughs> well, and uh, because your company is notorious for their aggressive pursuit of tenant evictions. <laughs> oh, let's just get on with this little farrago, shall we? Who listens to podcasts, anyway? <laughs> <laughs> uh, your business, uh, Landlord Traction, what do they do? We are the UK's first eviction specialist, authorised by the Solicitors Regulation Authority, recognised by the Property Ombudsman, and highly respected by the Daily Mail. You make your money by helping landlords evict bad tenants, and, in extreme cases, squatters. Correct. How much do you charge for your services? Two grand, and that's cheap at twice the price. It includes personally drafting the paperwork, personally attending court, and serving the proceedings on the property by personal attendance and VAT. Generous. <laughs> Plenty of hard-working property owners spend north of 20 grand evicting squatters. Two grand is a pittance, and I guarantee you that nothing will clear your house of scum quicker than us. Except Sillip Bang. <laughs> what? Tell me about the campaign. Landlord Traction have collected 1,319 signatures demanding that Parliament finally make squatting illegal. But it already is illegal under Section... That stop splitting hairs! It's not criminal. Squatters must get punished properly for the damage and distress that they cause. Don't you feel bad taking away what might be a vulnerable person's only home? There's plenty of legislation protecting tenants. And if it looks like they're going to end up homeless, the local authority will step in. Well, how would you feel if a cynic were to suggest that criminalising squatting would, shall we say, streamline your services, make your job easier and so increase your profit margin? I think we're done here. Bravo. Yeah. Demonise yeah. landlords and alienate the 63 million non-members of the Communist Party who believe in the right to property, oh, which includes, oddly enough, property. Yeah, my, my only point is that this whole affair was started by one bloke with business interests in evictions. And over a thousand signatures. Yeah, petitions on the official gov.uk website only get a response when they hit 10,000. It couldn't be ignored. There were high-profile anti-squatting campaigns in both the Evening Standard and the Daily Telegraph. Ah, the press. Off the table. Do 
Bruce Darling. Hmm? Clear off, I want the scrap. Dinner's ready. If we had a bigger house, we'd have more space. There's plenty of space. Just hold on till the kids die. You know I didn't mean... I just need my own office. No, you just need to go to the office. I can't work surrounded by 12-year-olds writing clickbait headlines. False nails causes cancer. Fatherhood causes cancer. You shouldn't work for them, then. What's this? You can see what it is. Chicken. Uh, I mean, what's it called? Chicken. The recipe. Never mind. Thank you. That didn't hurt, did it? What are you working on, anyway? Squatting. Oh, yes, I read about that. Squatting causes bowel cancer. It's colon cancer, actually, and squatting prevents it. Uh, Not that kind of squatting. A couple of Guy Ritchie's Fitzrovia mansions have been taken over by squatters. They want to turn it into a school. Sounds promising. They're refusing to talk to the journos. Don't blame them. Thanks, darling. So be a good journo and make it up. Hmm. How about... This place isn't nice enough for me. I want somewhere posher with a swimming pool. What do you think? Too cliché? No, but we'll put it in quotes and we'll believe every word. Mm. What's the old uh, Fleet Street line? Mm. The fourth estate is for the state. Uh Christ. Well, go on. Cheer us up. What's the headline? Um, Millionaire's empty pied-à-terre reopened for community benevolence. Bold. I like it. Reminds me of your days on The Daily Truth. Um, Either that or... Lock, stock and squat. Snatched. Guy Ritchie's second homes invaded by masked squatters. Yeah. Yeah, I think on reflection, Paul might prefer that one. I think you're right. Mm. Lovely chicken. Order! Order! I call this house to order for the debate of early day motion 1545 calling for the criminalisation of squatting. The Right Honourable Mike Weatherly, Hovenport Slade, Conservative. It's a pleasure to serve under your chairmanship today, Mr Brady. (laughs) I will start this debate with a quote. This place isn't nice enough for me. I want somewhere posher, with a swimming pool if possible. Those are not the words of someone complaining about the gym facilities at the House of Commons. (laughs) They are the words of one of London's most prolific squatters about his latest free home. Fine, so what if the press have jumped on the squatting gravy train? Just because it's arbitrary doesn't mean it's unjust. What gives a bunch of student Trustafarians the right to break into Guy Ritchie's house? Yeah, well, every, every one of us is descended from squatters, even the Queen. Oh, so now you're going back to Neanderthal times. Squatting is just seeking shelter from your environment in whatever way you can, without trampling on the rights of others to do the same. And speaking of shelter, that reminds me of another... Oh, God, don't do that. ...charity. For the plain ones. Oh, Thank you. OK, lovely. Thanks again for coming to this crisis, crisis meeting. Now, we've got a lot... Yes? Isn't that too many crises? No, it isn't. We are homeless charity crisis, and the proposed law is yet another crisis situation for our clients, Mm. making this the crisis crisis meeting. So uh, thank you for coming. Now, we've got a lot to get through. But shouldn't it, I mean, shouldn't it at least be crises? No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. You've all heard the minister's announcement today. It looks like squatting, residential properties at least, will become a criminal offence. Yeah, now, great news. We... Sorry. Uh, what? I, I said. Uh, I said great news. Um, that's, that's why we're all here, isn't it? To, to celebrate. Um, remind me how criminalising 50,000 people for trying to find a home is a cause of celebration for a charity for homeless people? Oh, rhetorical question. Clever clogs. <laughs> no, yeah. not a rhetorical question. Really? Really. Okay, well, okay, well, well, stop me if I'm wrong, but this is the mother load, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's boom time, people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, okay, I can see some of you are having trouble with this one, so, so let me work through it, okay? Mm. Crisis, 
only exists yeah. to support homeless people, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm glad you grasped yeah. that right. much. Okay, good. Now, 60% of our funding comes from members of the public who believe there is a problem with homelessness. Don't you see? This is, I mean, this is our golden ticket. This law is our golden ticket. An absolute oh, cash cow windfall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on, we're yeah. finally on the gravy train, guys. The gold rush has started. No more squatting. Loads more homeless. 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 The Right Honourable Crispin Blunt, Justice Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Far too many people have to endure the misery, expense, and incredible hassle of removing squatters from their property. Hard-working home and business owners need and deserve a justice system where their rights come first. Today's consultation is a first step to achieving this. Now, I am clear that the days of so-called squatters' rights must end, and squatters who break the law receive a proper punishment. There you go, a consultation. Everyone has their say. Democracy is served. Well, it was over so quickly that the Chief Fire Officers Association had to ask for a two-week extension to have time to prepare a response. Others were more emotional. Ladies and gentlemen, may I first say what a pleasure it is to share this platform with my colleague from British Transport Police <laughs> and welcome you all to New Scotland Yard, the home of the Metropolitan Police Service. May I too say how delighted I am to join with you in what I hope will be a robust declaration of the Law Enforcement Agency's position on the nefarious practice of squatting. Indeed. Mm. The Metropolitan <laughs> Police Service believes that the present law is broadly in the right place. And, um, Wrong place, surely. <laughs> and the existing array of offences including criminal damage and aggravated trespass, already allow us to tackle the worst cases of squatting, where squatters cause the homeowner to be displaced. I must respectfully and forcefully disagree with my friend and colleague. <laughs> the British Transport Police believe squatters to be a public nuisance, and when it comes to our railway network, a public danger, if not an actual terror threat. <laughs> a survey carried out by the MPS identified 224 squats across Greater London including both residential and non-residential premises. The majority empty or abandoned. Well, Transport for London has evidence of tunnels being dug at basement level between adjoining properties, power supplies jerry-rigged and running free to provide light and heating. Again, it is the view of the MPS that the current law provides an appropriate framework... These are predominantly groups of young, single males of... Eastern European and Italian origin who habitually squat from one property to another with the assistance of the squatter grapevine. This new law will do nothing more than turn the police into free bailiffs for the rich. Squatters are fully conversant with the limits of the current civil law. Our only recourse is to make squatting a criminal offence. What's your problem anyway? Trespass on the railway is already a crime and surely railway property is non-residential. It won't even come under the new act. There's an increase in trend towards causing damage to squatted property damage to fittings, gratuitous graffiti and, on a number of occasions, excreta on the walls. I don't believe this. I always knew you lot were mercenaries, but... Excreta! I think what my dear friend and colleague is trying to say Shit. is... Shit! is that because British Transport Police are 95% funded by the privatised railway companies, their paramilitary interests are more closely aligned with landlords and landowners than they are... Than At least got. we don't go around shooting innocent people! Yeah. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, I think that's us out of time. Come here and say that. This is getting ridiculous. The consultation was nothing more than a rubber-stamping exercise. But isn't it about time we heard from some actual squatters? Ah, I'm glad you said that. What's that? That is the entire archive of over 2,000 responses to the government's consultation. Have a read. 
I, for one, do not wish to live in a country where the freedom to roam, enjoy wild space, celebrate informally or creatively make mm. use of derelict places is met with the force of the criminal law. Hmm. A squatter? Yes. Persons unknown. Yeah. Yeah, here's another. Initially, on trying to enter the premises, we were bombarded with bricks, slates and bottles. The police attended and were only interested in informing us of the squatter's rights. Hmm. A landlord, I suppose. Right, let's have another one. Personally, I'd rather be burgled, as it is infinitely less complicated. Okay, let's have one more. Question six. Do you think there is a need for a new criminal offence of squatting? No. The number of interim possession orders indicates that this really is quite a small problem for society. Although it can be a large problem for a small number of individuals. I suppose that's the crux of the problem. It's not that the criminalisation of squatting is necessarily unjust. But it is a problem for some people. But who? Private landlords are three times wealthier than the general British population, yet their operations are subsidised by legislations like this. Isn't it worrying how persuasively money talks? Well, what? Have you read it? If you're talking about Peppa Pig's magic boots, then yes. <laughs> Otherwise, the answer's fuck off and stop asking leading questions. Um, I mean the consultation, of course. I'm terribly proud of the title. Options for dealing with squatting. Punchy, isn't it? Don't mess with us. We're the M.O. Jeffing J. Yes. I've had the miserable revulsion of reading your nauseating consultation document. <laughs> what of it? you say the picture on squatting is more, should we say nuanced? We'll say nuanced, than we might have hoped. The matter against any changes, so too the law society, and the magistrates, well, they're already mm, up in no, arms. That's interesting, because the picture I'm looking at is of an enormous white canvas, and somebody's taken a pail of pig species oh. and splashed... Nobody gives a shit about squatting, right across the middle. But we had over 2,000 people... All right, who... Vorderman... Not precisely nobody. Hmm. 2,217 people give a shit about this law. And the people who most give a shit, the poor shitting squatters who are going to get shit on, only 2,126. Well, that is almost 96%. Not so fast, Carol. To you, that might sound like almost 96%. Hmm. But to me... That sounds eerily like nobody giving a shit. There are 50 million adults in this country. 50 million loyal subjects who could give a shit about this law. And this wondrous Ministry of Justice consultation document informs us that only 2,126 people do. That is not almost 96% of anything. That is less than I don't give a fuck. Or, in your parlance, please... Uh, um, well, certainly less than um, one two-hundredth of a percent, as it were, approximately. If you laid every single person who gave a shit about this law, asked a tit from here to the moon, then you'd have something worth talking about. Hmm. This consultation isn't. Oh, I see what you mean. 2,126 people laid end to end, um, assuming an average height of not quite six foot, would barely get as far as Hampstead. Where we will take the distinct pleasure in requiring the police to remove them under Section 144 of the new Criminal Act. If it passes. It'll pass. No one gives a shit about this law. The law. Any law. (laughs) Now, what's next? Until it affects them. What? Just, no one gives a... um, until it affects them, presumably. All right, Gandhi. Then they might give a shit, but by then it's too late. The law's gone. Now, what's next? Um, the badger call? Oh, Jesus. And so, the criminalisation of squatting was tacked on as an amendment to the end of the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Bill. Which you're going to say has nothing to do with housing. The bill's greatest offence was scrapping legal aid for housing, welfare, medical negligence, employment, debt and immigration cases. Why should we be paying for lawyers when police, teachers and nurses are facing cuts? 
and squatting is part of exactly the same money-for-nothing culture. They're trying to bypass democracy through the back door. Mike Weatherly's squatting amendment was added after the second reading of the bill in the House of Commons. And only debated late at night in the Lords. This is going to be the last one. Yeah, yeah, it is. The time is 11.45pm and you're watching BBC Parliament. Why, I don't know. My lords, I realise they are. I am very pleased that so many of your lordships are still in their places at this time of night to debate this <gasps> issue. I think the committee will need to question very deeply the government's claim that they need to criminalise the vulnerable homeless who are seeking shelter. My lords, during the passage of this bill, they have learnt that there is no need for this clause because squatting in people's homes is already criminal. Nor is there a demand for it. Only ten people, 0.5% of all respondents to the government's own consultation, wrote in to say that they had been the victims of squatting. In a bill that is all about cost-cutting, this clause will cost the Ministry of Justice and the Home Office many tens of millions in enforcement, court time, rehabilitation, curfew monitoring, and that is before we get to the costs of rehousing. I am still against this clause in every way, but on the basis that the government are determined to push it through, I must look at mitigating any way I can the injustices being perpetrated against the homeless. For the love of God, she failed. The law passed and the Queen gave it the big thumbs up in May 2012. Squatting in residential properties is a criminal offence. Up to six months in prison, a five grand fine, or both. Get over it! And now the weather. <laughs> Bloody hell. That ended quickly. Yeah, we had to. Second's only 15 minutes. No, I mean the parliamentary process. The whole thing from announcement to enactment took less than a year. Oh, great. Let it never be said that democracy can't be just as efficient as a dictatorship. Oh, wow. I don't want to end on a downer. Come on, then. Finish off with another quote from your raggedy philosopher's book. Oh, it's the ragged-trousered philanthropists. Yeah, make it snappy, though. Well, I did actually have a look at that quote from earlier. Oh, yeah? What? Yeah. Thousands of houses unoccupied and millions of homeless in overcrowded hovels. Mm, yeah, yeah. More than 200,000 houses have been sitting empty for at least six months in the UK. 11 million people are living in substandard living conditions and more than a quarter of us are struggling to afford the roof above our heads. Who cares as long as it's up there? Since this anti-squatting law was enacted, the number of people living rough has doubled. And you know who did that research? Uncle Scrooge. Crisis, the homeless charity. Ah, boom time for them. What? There's your positive note. Boom time. Oh. Gravy train. Golden channel. Okay, I'm going now, mate. Yeah. Bye. Mm-hmm. Since 2012, the police have consistently hit their annual target of 140 to 160 arrests under Section 144. Alex Hay, a 21-year-old bricklayer, was the first to be prosecuted. He was sentenced to 12 weeks in jail. He had no previous convictions. In the winter of 2013, homeless Daniel Gauntlet was found dead outside an empty bungalow in Kent. He'd been prevented from entering the property by police and died of hypothermia. According to a local resident, he used to buy pasties from the local supermarket. It was so sad. That was Options for Dealing with Squatting by David Charles. It featured Susan Harrison, Carolina Grierson, Charlie Kemp and James Witt. And us, yeah. We'll promise we'll get some better actors next time. <laughs> and now we're going to catch up with Claire. Um, we spoke to her a year after she'd left her squat and we hear some of her reflections and talk about some highlights from community projects that they'd organised. Um... Yeah, so I guess it's almost... I guess because you've moved on now from where you are, so you've got a bit of space to 
look at it and reflect on it yourself or you've had a bit um just to to see how the whole experience um sort of what you've taken away from it i guess okay so i left my fourth squat uh in june of last year and um i have had quite a bit of time to to reflect on it and the reasons i left were to do with the community mainly um general aggressivity basically it kind of went tits up i guess you could say um and i i learned quite a few lessons in terms of well like life lessons about living with a lot of people that you don't necessarily have much information on and that you've shared lots of very intense things but their history their background kind of catches up with them from time to time and so that's that's what occurred um and essentially what i've taken away from it um over the course of last year has been really um i think in terms of my experience adapting to different people and situations and kind of um cultivating an open-mindedness about where people are coming from and their motivations for for getting engaged in political activism or you know housing activism and what i've taken away from the community has been i don't know i think well what it takes to live with a lot of people and accept people's differences and i know that sounds kind of shallow and on the surface but being here in car now <laughs> so central african republic um and living with a lot of people a lot of my coworkers that i don't know in a very intense context i think that the squat so like very much so has prepared me for this experience um having to put up with constraints living constraints and also people's general you know moods and lifestyles um and in terms of con- community i remember yeah sorry last time yeah tell me i remember last time uh, you and i were talking about this you said there were all kinds of different people had come to the squats for different reasons yeah. can you i mean what what were some of those reasons where were people coming from um so i think to summarize um to generalize on people's profiles which i guess yeah um there were people who were coming from studentish backgrounds who'd been um i guess politicized at university had gained an awareness on social issues and social matters and were fighting for them um at a university level in their student unions um on political councils and parties that kind of thing uh political parties and uh were coming to the squad as a kind of next step in their activism in that kind of pathway towards you know deeper engagement um on these issues a lot of people came from quite precarious backgrounds so um i had a few close um friends in the squad who had actually lived on the street for several years before encountering squatters who allowed them to squat with them and what i mean by allowed them is in the sense that people on the street can squat in front and you know anyone can can enter a building and and take up you know occupy the space it's just that without um a network of people who are aware of their rights uh, the legal and administrative aspects those squats don't last for very long so a lot of these precarious people who'd experienced squatting in a homeless context i would say so coming off of the street um in the squats that i were i i was in um benefited from kind of general support um and gained awareness of their rights um in terms of you know housing and the kind of legal aspects of squatting so there were those people and then there were other types of profiles maybe people who'd experienced hardship at some point in their life and didn't necessarily have a very clear political engagement but knew that they wanted to break away from the general system of things people who perhaps had a job but wanted to commit to more cultural or social activities and lacked the network of friends to to kind of um commit to certain projects as you mentioned community projects so i think those are the three main profiles um and an interesting thing that i observed then and that i still think to be true is that um a lot of the precarious people who 
didn't necessarily have the same opportunities as the students who are living in the squad. Um, gained a lot in terms of culture and education. Um, and that kind of sounds condescending. And in some ways it was at times during meetings where, you know, the students would kind of deploy all of their very academic theoretical knowledge on politics. And then you had the homeless people speaking from, you know, uh, the grassroots level, I guess. But both parties benefited from each other's experiences. Um, and it's true to say that the students in many ways became more precarious because of their life in the squat. Um, so that means that maybe they had a student job beforehand and committing to the squat life and community project meant that they gave up that job because you know housing is free, food is free. So they didn't need um, to have that additional activity uh, and they could really commit fully to, to helping out in the squat. Um, but in doing so, economically, they were a bit more unstable Whereas the people who'd come off the street were actually more stable in many ways because um, they were gaining some kind of rhythm by being around other people who had their student life rhythm and that kind of thing. I don't know if it makes much sense, but basically both, yeah, both profiles kind of converge sure, and yeah. I think really benefited from, from one another's experiences in terms of life experiences. And I, it was quite a harmonious um, setup, to be fair. And looking back on it... And am I right in... Oh, sorry. Yep. Lagging. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, and am I right in thinking that a big part of that community in your squad or in other squads was refugees in France at the time? Yeah, sorry. That is the fourth profile. Wait. Yeah, fourth profile. Refugees, indeed. I can't believe I forgot that I'm working for the Danish... Anyway, yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, so that was another um, enriching aspect, very much so. Um, but I have to say that it really depended on individuals whether or not they had a close contact with the refugees. Um, I think that you might be aware of the political situation in France. I think I mentioned it at the time um, with Marine Le Pen, who we thought might be elected um, as, you know, our next president. Um, the people that I've come across who were homeless and found refuge in the squat were actually in some ways adverse to the refugees living with us on the basis that they felt that they had very little access to their own, to the things that they had rights to, and that these refugees were gaining, you know, were getting more help than they were. And I think in some ways the squat kind of equalized that competitive relationship that you might see in the street. Because clearly in the street, a lot of French homeless people have a very kind of institutionalized racism um, with regard to the fact that, yeah, the French government's helping out these refugees, but not giving us any housing. They're getting housing before we're getting housing. All stuff that's just, you know, stuff that they're being fed in the media and in political discourse um, that isn't actually true in factually. Um, and the squad equalized that relationship because I think... Um, the refugees realized that actually there are a lot of people in France living in equally bad situations. Obviously, they're not running from war, um, but it shocked a lot of the people that I encountered who had who had ran away from war, who had ended up in the squat, um, that, that French people could be so poor. And it sounds very basic, but they didn't. They were like, but, you know, these people have cars. Um, some of the squatters had, you know, rusty old trucks and that kind of thing and to the refugees it was a sign of wealth and i'm talking about um chadian refugees and there were also albanian refugees living in the squat and um they had quite an interesting relationship to the way that the homeless um group of people lived um because of their own kind of cultural codes uh they have a very strong attachment to cleanliness to uh, communal cooking, that kind of thing. Whereas they realized that um, on the French side of things, everything is very much individualistic, probably because these people have had to rely on themselves for so long and have their own kind of space and independence with regards to that kind of thing. And so community didn't meant that they shared everything with everyone. It meant that they kind of found themselves in a position where they were more stable and could get on. For yeah, exactly. Well, and could get along could, could get on with their lives in a way that they couldn't on the street, I think. Um, so, yeah, the conflation of all these profiles was quite interesting. And the refugees um, definitely made up a huge part of the squat dynamic. 
um, especially uh, the families that had children because it kind of imposed certain rules on community living, notably in terms of the parties that were organized, um, drugs going around, that kind of thing. People were very much, um, you know, on it in terms of making sure that the children were out of harm's way. Um, when the police would come to the squat, the families were protected. Um, people would guard them. There was a very strong sense of solidarity in that sense um, and a very acute awareness of the fact that these people had to be protected at all costs. Because despite all the differences and in the institutional racism that I mentioned earlier, um, at the end of the day, everyone realized that these refugees could be sent back to their country or detained for the most random of reasons. And that at least as French people and French citizens, we have freedom and kind of legal um, outlets to kind of defend ourselves in the face of that sort of thing, whereas they don't, and they had very little rights. And I'm talking about the um, the refugees who hadn't gained asylum, um, hadn't gained the status. You know, yeah, it takes a very long time in France. So you get help for a while, depending on your nationality, and also the lists. There are long waiting lists, um, but you do have to fend for yourself, and you get a small allowance depending on your situation. But it's precarious and I think a lot of refugees live on the street because yeah there's very little help available actually so before we I hope that go, answers your question <laughs> <laughs> more, more than answers it um, before we go too far down the the, the problems um, let's talk about the the community projects and when we chatted to you in the first place one of the projects you mentioned when you were getting involved with the squat was a restaurant that they were setting up based on the using the the food waste that they were gathering and I think when you and I were talking about it you you told me that start setting up community projects was one of the things that squatters used to defend their their right to be there and to to justify the squat's existence so I want to talk more about what those projects involved and and the community spirit that came with it oh yeah yeah so um the project you're referring to is the resto recup uh, so the food recuperation restaurant um, it was a sort of community canteen. Um, it was held on Sundays and it went on for about three to four months, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's because it was just before the summer and some of the squatters left. And essentially what it entailed was um, a collective outing to the food markets around Lyon to gather some of the food that had been thrown out by, um, by some of the, the grocers um, at the market. And then having this huge um, communal com cooking session. So it took up the whole of Sunday, but basically we would go out in the mornings, we'd cook in the afternoon, and everyone would come for dinner around 8 p.m. and there'd be music. And at the beginning, there were about 20 people who turned up. And then at the end, I think there were 70 to 80 people um, from all walks of life, including some of the squat's neighbors who'd previously complained about, you know, noise and parties and, oh, my gosh, you're squatters and you're using the system, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they actually came to this event. And it was a really interesting event because sharing food is quite a symbolic um, thing. So people coming together around a vegetarian meal, so it could cater to, you know, everyone's religions and beliefs and lifestyles um, was quite a strong point. And um, the fact that neighbors came, so neighbors who were renting or, you know, their own, they, they own their own flats, meant that there was this kind of legitimacy in the sense, you know, you're kind of legitimating this squat and the people who live in it and the activities they're running by your presence and by your curiosity and interest. Um, and it was a great way to get people to enter the squat in a quite safe environment. It wasn't the kind of crazy punk parties that were organized and the concert noise concerts and that sort of thing. It was a very neutral event. Um, and it led to debates and discussion and exchanges. And it was, it was great. Um, I was going to ask, are there, were there other events that were opened up to outside communities in that way? Um, so, there was uh, there were quite a few other events actually. There was a Spanish Spanish classes were organised, and lots of people who had nothing to do with the squat would come to those Spanish lessons. They were free, 
um, and often entailed Spanish cooking. <laughs> uh, so, and that went on for quite a while. I think it was a year-long project um, run by um, an ex-indignado, you know, from the Spanish activist movements in Barcelona. Um, and she was, yeah, she, so she taught a, a class of maybe 10 people. It was on a regular basis. It was weekly. Um, there was also a sex, a sexual, uh, awareness workshop. That was a much smaller event and people were a little hesitant to participate. Um, and you know, it was about sharing experiences and kind of thinking progressively about sexual relations and that sort of thing. Um, which is also quite a strong strong part of uh squatting in, in the sense you know queer culture and also sexual liberation that sort of thing it's all about you know being progressive and yes. and working towards more freedom in all aspects of life essentially um and then there was also um a uh furniture so a pallet furniture construction workshop so basically using recycled materials and pallets. <laughs> so most of the furniture in the squat was like but the bar basically was made out of pallets. Um, all the tables and benches in the Restore Coupe were actually made um, at the construction workshop. Few people came, but a, quite a few art students participated in that one. Um, and the idea was to take um, open source designs by this one Italian um, furniture designer think interior designer who put all of these models on online basically uh and it's open source so you know intellectual freedom that kind of thing so everything is politicized in that way um and so people would come and, and build all this furniture and i think there was quite a lot of exchange around that Amazing. and finally i mean there are other workshops but a really big one a big part of the of the squat the the first squat that i was in was the um bicycle workshop and that's actually quite a recurring thing in a lot of squats. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it, this is actually, um, well, they still exist. There are quite a few charities in Lyon um, that are well, bicycle workshop charities. I guess it's, you can go to these places. It's like an auto repair workshop sort of thing. You can also buy your bicycles. You can get advice. And it's for very low prices. Um, and they're met, yeah, so it's it's charity, basically. And these kind of associations that have have been made up and one of them had their workshop in the squat because they couldn't find any kind of funding or agreement with the city council in order to set up shop in an official location so they used the squat um, in that way and actually they now have an official workshop so in many ways the fact that they gained visibility in the squat enabled them to then advocate for for their activity um when when speaking and trying negotiating with the city council basically it was never really openly mentioned that they were in a squat but i think that the city council was very aware of, fully aware of of the situation um and they kind of said rather than selling it as hey we were in a squat and it worked really well so give us a give us a spot it was more like we ran social activities in a place of cultural exchange <laughs> give us a spot <laughs> um but the city council were well, well aware of, of their presence um and that was also on a weekly basis and so many people came to that the workshop was huge um and it was it had that um environmental vibe because obviously uh a big part of it was trying to motivate people to use bikes um instead of their cars and that kind of thing and a lot of people out of the squat would come to the workshop. And also, by coming to the bicycle workshop, would find out about all the other workshops that were being led. So everything feeds into it itself, basically. Um, and communication was was done that way. And so to wrap it up, what's your, your final positive thought from the experience? Um, to bring you on the spot. It's been... <laughs> Well, I've had a bit of time to think about it, but not much time to formulate it, I guess, uh, over the past year. This is it. This is I think it's been it. an amazing... Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. <laughs> it's been a, guess, an amazing guess... life experience. And I... Yeah, yeah. sorry, Charlie. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going <laughs> to ask a question. Like, to reframe that in another way, what, what, how would you give advice to somebody who's um, coming, who would want to do it? yourself so how would you advise them 
I think that one of the main pieces of advice I would give is prepare to deconstruct. Prepare to open yourself up to a lot of different people, a lot of ideas, a lot of them theoretical, and see them in concrete application. Um, and get ready to get your hands dirty and participate in all of that. Um, and, you know, there's the whole deconstructionistic, whatever, um, current of thought. And I think the squat is a is a great application of that. And so I think I would – it's one of the main things I'm taking away from this whole experience. It's that it it put me in the face. It, it confronted me with a lot of things that I'd never seen before, that I'd never experienced. It opened my eyes to so many things in terms of issues and in terms of solutions to those issues – um, and it's a very rounded experience. It's very wholesome and holistic, I think you could say. Um, but you have to be open and you have to go in there knowing that you're going to change, that you're going to learn a lot and that you're also going to have the occasion and you'll be expected to teach others um, and share your experience and your thoughts and your ideas, even if it leads to conflict, even if it leads to confrontation and disagreement. Um, and that's part of the process. And it's really all about deconstructing all preconceived ideas and going in there fresh and getting ready to kind of feel destabilized and feel in contradiction with everything that you've known before, everything you're seeing as well at times, um, and having an open mind about it. And I know it sounds very easy and it's really not. So prepare for it to be hard. <laughs> um, Brilliant, Claire. It's, it's been a really amazing chat. Yeah, um, lovely to hear from to, you again. Yeah. I always feel like I'm blabbing. <laughs> no, not. <laughs> and going all over the place. <laughs> no, well, we've put you on the spot there. I mean, how many miles away yeah, are you? You should probably <laughs> edit out later. the bit where I say, isn't there that kind of deconstructionistic <laughs> no, current that's, of thought? That's like... mainly the only That's it from us this time. You can find out more on all our episodes by visiting our website, www.thenarrativist.com, where you can also give us feedback, join our mailing list, and find out more about getting involved. The Narrativist is an open platform, meaning we genuinely welcome your submissions and ideas. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.